reached our cruising altitude, it's time for the flyover. Welcome back to Flyover View, a member of the Heartland Pod family of podcasts. And look at Heartland News from 30,000 feet. From the Gateway Arch to the Rocky Mountains, I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today. So let's dive right in, folks. Leading the charge with a big helping of post-election goodness. Where we stand nationally. By now, the word is out. The Republican expectation of a resounding success, a red wave, as many termed it, did not come to fruition Tuesday night. Instead, we head into the latter part of the week with unexpected wins for the Democrats and races still too early to call in a midterm election year marred by troubling levels of inflation, something often wrongly blamed on the administration at the helm. This has to be seen as a poor result for the GOP. Like I said, though, there are races yet to be finalized and yet another runoff in Georgia. So where do we stand going into the next cycle? Well, the Senate comes down to two key swing states and maybe a runoff. Democrat John Fetterman flipped Pennsylvania early Wednesday morning, giving his party 48 seats, while Senator Ron Johnson barely squeaked out a re-election late Wednesday morning. That gives Democrats 48 seats and Republicans 49, meaning whichever party wins two of the three outstanding contests in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia will control the Senate. Arizona and Nevada are the biggest question marks, with significant numbers of votes still to be counted in both states. If either party sweeps those two states, it will take control of the Senate regardless of what happens in Georgia next month. In Nevada, Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Maisto is facing off with Republican Adam Laxalt. Laxalt leads with more than 70% of the expected vote counted, but there is still a long way to go in the state. And Laxalt's advantage is tenuous as Nevada's two most populous counties, Democratic-leaning Clark County, home of Las Vegas, and Battleground Washoe County, home of Reno, have at least tens of thousands of outstanding ballots yet to be counted. Arizona, too, has many votes outstanding. Democratic Senator Mark Kelly has the edge, but his lead over Republican Blake Masters is expected to shrink dramatically, but not erode completely. As of Thursday morning, around 70% of the vote was counted in the state, and Kelly was maintaining a lead of 5%, nearly 100,000 votes. Which leads us to, of course, Georgia, where Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock leads Republican Herschel Walker narrowly. This means a runoff election has once again been triggered, taking place on December 6th. Efforts to get out the vote in Georgia will ramp up once more. So be on the lookout for ways to help our heartland neighbors keep a deeply flawed candidate like Walker out of the Senate. For the House, the story is still one of unexpected success for Democrats compared to the forecasted events. But things ultimately are leaning more red. So while Republicans are still leading the race for the House majority, the number of uncalled races point to how surprisingly close the battle for the chamber has been. Of the 26 House races forecast as toss-ups, 10 remain uncalled as of Thursday morning. Another 18 races, related as lean Democrat or lean Republican, are also uncalled. Perhaps the most shocking seat still outstanding is in Colorado, where controversial Representative Lauren Boebert, who represents a heavily Republican seat that got even redder in redistricting, still narrowly trails Democratic opponent Adam Frisch, with nearly 100% of the vote tallied. Democratic incumbents also narrowly hold leads in some of their uncalled toss-up races sprinkled throughout the country, including seats in Connecticut, Maine, and Washington. And in New Mexico, Democratic challenger Gabe Vasquez is battling to unseat 
Republican incumbent Yvette Harrell. California and Nevada, where counting can be slow and ballots postmarked by Election Day can arrive later and still be counted, also have numerous uncalled House battleground races. So folks, this election will be scrutinized for some time, but with 2024 looming, it's not going to last that long. Eventually, it will become a reference point for many to try and decipher what it means going into what will be a very interesting presidential election year. I find myself hoping it's a signal that the country is starting to reject the more extreme characters on the right, those characters that have been striving to drive us closer and closer to fascism. Big Agriculture warns farming must change or risk destroying the planet. Food companies and governments must come together immediately to change the world's agricultural practices or risk destroying the planet, according to the sponsors of a report by some of the largest food and farming businesses released last week. The report from a task force within Sustainable Markets Initiative, or SMI, a network of global CEOs focused on climate issues established by King Charles III, is being released days before the start of the United Nations COP27 Climate Summit in Egypt. Many of the world's largest food and agricultural businesses have championed sustainable agriculture practices in recent years. Regenerative farming practices, which prioritize cutting greenhouse gas emissions, soil health, and water conservation, now cover 15% of croplands. But the pace of change has been far too slow, according to the report, and must triple by 2030 for the world to have any chance of keeping temperature rises under 1.5 degrees Celsius, a level that, if breached, scientists argue, will unleash even more devastating climate change on the planet. The report is signed by Bayer, Mars, McCain Foods, McDonald's, Mandela's, Olam, PepsiCo, Waitrose, and others. They represent a potent political and corporate force affecting the food supply chain around the world. They are also, according to critics, some of those most responsible for climate mismanagement, with one calling the report smoke and mirrors and unlikely to address the real crisis. Food production is responsible for a third of all planet heating gases emitted by human activity, and a number of signatories have been accused of environmental misdeeds and greenwashing. In fact, activist Greta Thunberg is boycotting COP this year, having called the global summit a PR stunt for leaders and people in power to get attention. Agriculture is the world's largest industry. Pasture and cropland occupy around 50% of the planet's habitable land and uses about 70% of fresh water supplies. The climate crisis is challenging the industry across the world. But the group's call for change comes as the industry, which employs 1 billion people, is facing supply chain issues in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic and soaring inflation. It also comes amid mounting skepticism about promises to change from companies that have contributed to climate change. These current issues must not detract from the need for change, the report argues. With the inflationary environment and widespread supply chain disruption, it would be easy to reduce our focus on the longer-term challenge of scaling regenerative farming. But we believe it's vital that we maintain a sense of urgency. We must take action now to avoid more acute crises in the future, the report's authors write. The task force members are working to make the short-term economic case for change more attractive to farmers. More widely, the report argues industry and government must also work harder to address the knowledge gap to make sure farmers are following best practices. Third, all parties involved in the agriculture industry, from the farmers to food producers to government, banks, and insurers, need to align behind encouraging a shift to more sustainable practices. <laughs> Marijuana Legalization in five states, recreational marijuana found its way in front of voters last Tuesday. 
In three states, it met with failure, but two states succeeded in legalization. In Arkansas, Voters on Tuesday rejected a constitutional amendment that would have allowed cannabis possession and recreational consumption by adults, as well as the sale by licensed facilities. Had it passed, cannabis possession of up to an ounce would have been legal, and some tax revenue from marijuana sales would have contributed to funding law enforcement. In Maryland, voters on Tuesday overwhelmingly approved a constitutional amendment that legalizes recreational marijuana for people 21 and older with 65% of the vote. It will go into effect on July 1st, 2023 and allow possession of 1.5 ounces or two plants. Possession of small amounts of marijuana was already decriminalized in Maryland. Under the amendment, those previously convicted of cannabis possession and intent to distribute will be able to apply for record expungement. In Missouri, as called by the Heartland Pod months ago, Missouri voters approved a proposed measure to end prohibitions on marijuana in the state and allow personal use for those over the age of 21. It will allow all personal possession of up to three ounces and allow individuals with marijuana-related nonviolent offenses to petition for release from prison or parole and probation and have their records expunged. The amendment takes effect in 30 days after passing. In North Dakota, a citizen-initiated ballot measure that aimed at allowing the use of marijuana in various forms for those who are at least 21 years of age was rejected by North Dakota voters. It would have allowed marijuana possession of up to an ounce and all marijuana to be tested in a facility for the potency of products and the presence of pesticides and subject to random inspection. And in South Dakota... Voters also voted down a measure to legalize cannabis in the state. Legalization for recreational marijuana use had passed in South Dakota in 2020, but the results were nullified by the state courts. According to the proposed 2022 ballot measure, marijuana possession of up to an ounce would have been legal. It also would have legalized possession of marijuana paraphernalia use and distribution. Hey there, folks. I hope you're enjoying the show. I want to remind you that we're a 100% listener-supported family of podcasts, all under the umbrella of the Heartland Pod. You catch our flagship show, The Heartland Pod, on Mondays every week with Adam Summer, where he delivers an opening statement before being joined by Sean Diller and Rachel Parker for Talking Politics. You can also join a variety of our hosts on most Tuesdays and Thursdays for Let's Have a Chat, featuring interviews with folks of interest from around the Midwest. On Wednesdays, the focus shifts to a rotating cast of special reports, like The Delta, with Nicholas and Christina Linke, and High Country, Sean Diller's Western political updates. Learn more at heartlandpod.com, and don't forget, for full access to the last call episodes and the Heartland News blog, sign up on Patreon as a podhead today. And now, the lightning round. Lightning round. Where we stand locally. I like local stories. The national stuff we hear all the time dominates our news feed. But the local politics, well, that's where we get our meat and potatoes. For myself and the bulk of the Heartland Pod crew, our local politics reside in the state of Missouri, a state that seemed to miss the message a little bit that we were supposed to push back against the extremists on Tuesday. Eric Schmidt won Roy Blunt's Senate seat, though with a much slimmer margin than Roy Blunt did in 2016, and the House landed at the expected 6-2 split. The Missouri legislature didn't shake up much, though there was growth in vote percentages in races that were contested by progressive candidates. One exception does stand out. Tracy McCreary has won the seat for Senate District 24. The district in St. Louis County encompasses a wide range of surrounding municipalities, including swaths of Maryland Heights and Creve Corps. 
Kelly wins Kansas, but roadblocks persist. Kansas Governor Laura Kelly has won re-election, but it remains unclear just how much power she'll have to pursue her agenda in her second term, as a constitutional amendment and several key state legislative races remain too close to call. The most closely contested statewide race in Kansas is the 50% to 50% vote on constitutional amendment that would grant the legislative authority that would grant the legislature authority to block rules and regulations issued by the governor's administration. No votes had a slight edge of roughly 60,000 votes as of Wednesday afternoon, but that margin could change as an unknown number of provisional ballots are considered by county election offices and late-arriving mail ballots that are being processed. Simultaneously, seven Kansas House races remained within 200 votes as final ballots are tallied. If current vote total counts hold, Democrats will pick up one seat, but Republicans will maintain a veto-proof majority in the chamber. Both situations present powerful potential checks on Kelly's power. In her first term, the Republican supermajority consistently passed legislation over her veto. The ability to override Kelly reduced the need for GOP leadership to negotiate with the Democratic governor. Democrats surprise Republicans in Battleground, Wisconsin. Democrats outperformed expectations in the midterm elections in Battleground, Wisconsin, leaving Republicans shocked at the narrower-than-expected win by two-term incumbent Senator Ron Johnson and a further eroding of support in reliably conservative Milwaukee suburbs. The biggest win for Democrats came with Governor Tony Evers beating back a challenge by Republican Tim Michaels to win another term, tripling the margin of his first win four years ago in a race that polls had shown for months to be about even. In other races, Democratic Attorney General Josh Cowell won his bid for a second term and longtime Secretary of State Doug LaFollette held a slim lead over his Republican challenger Amy Loudenbeck. You may recall in my earlier reporting that she wanted the office, currently devoid of any significant duties, to take on some election responsibilities in a bid to give Republicans a little more control going into 2024. Well, thankfully, that concern is now swept from the table. Ohio man killed by neighbor because he thought he was a Democrat. A 26-year-old Southwest Ohio man has been charged with murder after he was arrested in the shooting death of his neighbor. The sheriff's office says in a news release that Austin Combs of Okina is accused of shooting Anthony Lee King in the backyard of King's home at about 11.45 a.m. on Saturday. The sheriff's office released a few details of the shooting and offered no motive, but the wife of the victim could be heard in a 911 call reporting the shooting that the shooting involved a political dispute between Combs and King. On the call, you can hear the woman say, he's come over like four times confronting my husband because he thought he was a Democrat. The woman says in the call that she saw Combs walking away from her wounded husband after she had heard the shots fired. Illinois' Amendment 1 is too close to call. Supporters say Amendment 1 aims to codify workers' rights in Illinois. Opponents say it will embolden already powerful public employee unions in the state and lead to a significant increase in property taxes. The amendment's language says no law shall be passed that interferes with, negates, or diminishes the right of employees to organize and bargain collectively over their wages hours, and other terms and conditions of employment and workplace safety. As of midday Wednesday, 85% of the total ballots had been counted, and the amendment had about 58.7% support. Three-fifths majority support, or 60%, 
is what's needed of those votes on the measure for it to pass, or a simple majority of all votes cast in the election, including those who skipped the amendment question. And finally, Trump versus DeSantis. According to analysis, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has the edge over Donald Trump to score the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. DeSantis won re-election by a 19-point margin, while a number of Trump-backed candidates lost their races, such as Pennsylvania Senate candidate Mehmet Oz. An unnamed advisor has said that Trump is livid and screaming at everyone after his favored candidates failed to deliver big wins on Tuesday, and has stated about DeSantis that, quote, I would tell you things about him that won't be very flattering. I know more about him than anyone other than perhaps his wife. Now, DeSantis, for all his faults as a human being, has remained mum about any concerns he may have about Donald Trump. Well, that's all the time we have this week, folks. I want to thank you for joining us. If you feel you have a story I should look into and possibly highlight on the show, please tweet me throughout the week at Kev in Midmo or the Pod's parent account at the Heartland Pod. This week's episode featured reporting and information from Market Watch, The Hill, The Center Square, Cleveland.com, The Associated Press, The Kansas City Star, The New York Times, Fox News, CNN, The Guardian, and Political. Thanks for listening. The Flyer Review is a production of MidMap Media, LLC. Learn more at www.heartlandpod.com or at the Heartland Pod on Twitter. See you all next week.